Holy Spirit, we invite you in right now. And as we start this series on Ecclesiastes, God, what can torment us, it says. This book is our lives, the messiness of our lives. Spirit of the Most High God, you who are the advocate, you who brings wisdom, I pray, God, you would open our hearts and our minds right now. And I pray, Lord, that those of us who struggle with priorities and relationships and wealth and all the other things that bombard us, Lord, that we would see in this book how and why we prioritize things. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I meant to pass out glow sticks before that video came on, so um, apologies that I didn't. Um, For those of you who are going to ask me for the quotes, that video will be on our Facebook page tomorrow, so that way you don't have to um, ask me for which quotes. Listen, we're starting a brand new series uh, this week. It's called uh, The Wisdom of the King, and we're going to be walking through this uh, for the next few weeks because this is a pretty dense, it's a pretty dense series, and we need to kind of walk through it a little bit. I have a confession for you. I've been reading the book of Ecclesiastes now for about three and a half months, and it has, as I prayed there, it has literally tormented me because it is a book that when you read it, you say to yourself, this should not be in the Bible. Um, it doesn't make any sense. You're reading it through it. And the writer is saying things like, everything is meaningless. Just have, you know, have, eat, drink, and be merry for you are going to die. And all these things are in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I, as a pastor, I'm looking at this like, how am I going to teach on this? Now, mind you, if I teach exactly what he says, we're going to become a very popular church because we'll have this idea of like just you know eat and drink and be married it's all good there right but there was something else happening here lord had kind of dropped in my heart to kind of do a series on ecclesiastes but it's interesting when god kind of asks you to do something he doesn't give you the key to unlock it and i wrestled with this book and i i read it i read commentaries on it. i'm like okay i don't understand how exactly i'm going to uh, portray the redemptive nature of god using this as a text because it is ridiculous to read through um i would encourage you however as you walk through the series read through the book of ecclesiastes and if you haven't read it in a while i would say to you that you should read it because it has something to say to us and i hope that this series will help you to understand it deeper. It is very much a book of North American culture. It is very much a postmodern book on understanding this world. And unless you understand that and kind of dig deeper in it, you're going to miss out on exactly what's going on here. Uh, One person, a guy named Peter May, said this about Ecclesiastes. This ancient and fascinating document both intrigues and and disturbs its readers. It is so denigrated by some Christians that they have wondered why it is in the Bible at all. And that is what I came across time and time again. Commentators would say, avoid this book. People would say, I don't know how to make sense of this. It would be like you go through it. And, but the thing is, though, it's in the Bible, which means we're meant to read it. We are meant to wrestle with it. One of the things we need to understand about the Bible, it is an ancient document. It is written in a different culture. It's written in a different language. And because of that, sometimes we have, to make, we have to be aware that the lenses that we are reading this document may not be the right ones to understand what it's saying. As a matter of fact, Jen and I are going to be doing a series through the summer on how to read the Bible. And we're taking a look at scriptures that people have taken out of context. Uh, and we're going to kind of show, okay, this is how you look at it. And this is why this passage may not make sense to you. Or this is why you are totally mis- 
just quoting it, right? Uh, and so we're going to actually have that in the sermon. It's going to be really um, interesting. And we're actually, um, just a little uh, kind of a spoiler, uh, we're going to have a library that you guys can borrow books on how to read the Bible. Uh, a, a number of books uh, we're going to have there for you to kind of uh, borrow for summer reading. Uh, this is going to like summer reading, but it's going to be really fascinating. Because what I hear time and time again is, how do I understand the Old Testament? Why is it so bloody? Why does this happen? What, what's this all about the Holy Spirit? And, and why do these people do this, these horrible things? In the Bible, and yet it kind of seems that God loves them and that he uses them, right? Because we think that the Bible is a, is, is a morality play. We think of it like, uh, like oh, it's it, you know, the happy ending, right? But the Bible is more Quentin Tarantino than it is Walt Disney. Um, and unless you understand that about the Bible, you're going to kind of miss out on exactly how to wrestle with it, right? There is not a lot of happy endings of the Bible until you get to Revelation 22. Then you get your happy ending. But everything else between now and then is kind of messy. These people say ridiculous things. C.S. Lewis said that if I was going to write a propaganda pamphlet for Christianity, the Bible would not be it. Right? It would not be it. And when you study world religions, you see how somebody sits down, okay, this is how I want to propagate my religion. Great. This is how you do it. The Bible is not. The Bible is not. Ecclesiastes is one of the most difficult books in the Bible to understand until you understand the man who wrote it. So before we can jump in to understanding the book, we have to understand the man who wrote it. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 1 says this, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, before I, I go on, I just want to let you know, I'm going to unpack for you. Um, I'm not going to go too deep into this because the writer of Ecclesiastes is pretty obvious. Now, there has been some people over the last uh, few decades have kind of go back, to, have gone back to it and said, well, maybe it's not this person, right? Maybe it's not this individual. But the fact is, in Jewish tradition, and what's really interesting is that when you get a chance to read, uh, when you're studying the Old Testament, reading um, what rabbis have written about it, you get a whole nother layer of, of truth about it. As a matter of fact, next Easter, I'm working on a series about uh, the Lamb of God and looking at the Passover and, and seeing how Jewish tradition fits into the, the Eastern narrative. But that'll be uh, next Easter. But it's interesting when you look at this idea of um, um, the Jewishness of the Bible, you go, wow, I didn't realize that was there. So when you look at uh, Jewish tradition and you look at rabbinic teaching on Ecclesiastes, they're all of one consensus. The guy that wrote the book is King Solomon. Okay? This, is the, this is the writer. It's not until you get to the early part of the 19th century, uh, actually probably midpoint, where redactionism comes in. Redactionism simply means you go back and you're going, well, maybe that's not right. We've always assumed that. Let's go back and change it. It's not till that point in time people are going, well, maybe it's not Solomon. Now, be, to be clear, King Solomon never says, this is me. Okay, he doesn't say that. This is how he introduces himself. Now, what's interesting, though, is he says, son of David. What you need to understand, and we're going to take a look at the history, is Solomon is the last son, the true son of David that's going to rule. Because after Solomon, the kingdom is going to be broken into two pieces. Right? You're going to have the northern kingdom and the uh, southern kingdom. And again, in the summer, we're going to talk a little bit about Jewish history and how to understand the Bible and kings and chronicles. Because sometimes you read through it and you're going... How does this fit in history? Where does this go? And why is this king killing lots of people? Like, why is that? Uh, um, you're going to meet a guy named Jehu. Uh, Jehu's in the Bible, but there's a, um, in a rabbinic teaching, they call him Jehu the butcher. Because what he does is he goes through to solidify his reign, and he kills a lot of people. It's Quentin Tarantino, not Walt Disney, right? Um, and so when we through, walk through Ecclesiastes, what we need to understand is the person that wrote it is King Solomon. And the reason that's important is because... 
You won't understand the book. You won't understand what he's saying until you read it through his eyes. Now, in the middle of the background of Solomon. Solomon was the son of King David and Bathsheba. Bathsheba was his mother. Okay? Now, remember, Solomon was the second uh, son of uh, King David. Remember, the first one passed away. God uh, judged uh, David in his sin, and that child died. Okay? So, uh, um, Solomon is the second um, um, son of, of, of King David and Bathsheba. Now, imagine that's your story. Who's your mom? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, what was that? Uh, Bathsheba. Oh, the person I read about in the Bible, in the book of Psalms, which was the Hebrew songbook, right? That individual. Oh, that's your... Okay, it's kind of an awkward moment here. Let's kind of move on, right? But that's who his mom was, was Bathsheba. Now... I don't know, we don't know a lot more about Bathsheba after the event took place. The Bible hints a little bit about her, but we don't, we can't, we can't make too many assertions about her because we don't want to, what we have to always be careful about is we don't input our voice into the Bible, right? We can't put our comfort zones in the Bible, right? And so with Bathsheba, there's things I could say, but there'd be more supposition than they would actually be fact. But what we do know for sure is Bathsheba was Solomon's uh, mother, Solomon became a king at the age of 12. How does that mess with your noodle, okay? A 12-year-old. I used to be a junior high pastor, and there's no way I want them to have power over anything. (laughs) They don't even have power over using deodorant, and it's just like, how can this person rule a nation, right? But King Solomon becomes king at the age of 12. And what's interesting, I'm not going to get into this too much, but the beginning of Solomon's reign, he has to kill some people who are going to actually um, take his reign away from him. Right? So the beginning of his reign, actually, there's bloodshed. And what we also know as well, too, is that Solomon wasn't actually David's next in line. It was a guy by the name of Adonijah. But God says, no, no, it's going to be Solomon, not him. And so uh, there's this, this kind of a uh, um, um, family feud that actually is a, is, is a killing. You know, you think your family drives you crazy. You know, this is a whole different level. Oh, by the way, if you're visiting with us this morning at UCC for Mother's Day, we want to say welcome to you. Um, and though we'll never see you again, please like our Facebook page. Okay. David, when he writes about King Solomon, he writes what we coronation psalms. Sometimes in the book of Psalms, there's just so many different things happening. David did not write every one of the psalms. Um, other writers wrote in there. But there's different things that are happening, right? Different things that are taking place. Psalm 72 is what we call the coronation psalm. This is David writing about his, his son Solomon as he takes the throne. Look what David says. He says, endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. May he judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted one with justice. May the mountains bring prosperity to the people. May the kings of Tarshish and the distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. May gold, uh, uh, may gold from Sheba be given to him. This psalm is part prophetic because we do know that the queen of Sheba does visit Solomon and does bring him gold that is from that area. But it's also kind of framing. See, when we talk about king, what we're really saying to her, what we don't, we, we're trying to wrap our mind around is how can one individual have so much power? We don't understand kings today, right? We understand wealthy people right? We, we understand people with power. We understand people with influence. We understand celebrities and athletes. That we get. But we don't understand a person who has all of that and the ability to take everything that he, he wants from you. We don't understand that kind of power, 
right? We hear about it with dictators and with despots and people who are committing genocide. We kind of understand that, but we look at that and we say, that is absolutely evil, that one individual could wield so much power. So when we look at a king, we have this part of us going, I don't really understand how this works. But when God looks at a king, he has a different way of looking at a king. See, today in our culture, wealth is a means of, of, uh, of living, but it's also a means of, of power and exertion of our will, right? If you have a family member who is perhaps wealthier than everybody else, well, they tend to kind of get what they want. Why? Power, uh, money equals power. Right? Well, with the king, that's exactly the case. But God saw the kings differently. See, when you look at the Bible and you see the Bible, it can be kind of broken up, right? You've got the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. This is really the foundation of the entire Bible. This is the law. This is, this, this is how uh, God kind of relates his character and nature and his chosen people. But after that, you have these books called Chronicles and Kings. And this is now the time of the imperial, the time of the royalty of Israel. This is the kind of the... The, the last days of Israel that were really when they were powerful, right? In this context, kings emerge. When you look at these kings, you say to yourself, is this what God wants? Is this how we wield power and wealth? Is this how we appear? This is, is this how we, uh, how we understand relationships? And the answer is no. As a matter of fact, when you go through the king's list, and just a, a brief history lesson for you, the two kingdoms were broken. Okay, And when they were broken, what took place was, is you have two kings uh, ruling. You'd have this phrase called king of Israel, but then you'd also have the king of Judah, right? Because that's how it was broken up. Now, the kings of Israel were not from the line of Judah, which meant God looked at them as imposters. Because remember, God said only the kings can come from the line of Judah. That's where Jesus comes from, was from the line of Judah. That's what Matthew chapter 1 is. That's why the genealogy is there. It's Matthew's way of telling to the Hebrews, the Jews, Jesus is the Messiah. He has the lineage to be Messiah, right? So the kings of Israel were imposters in God's eyes, right? But God still used them to accomplish his will, okay? So... When you look at these kings, these individuals wielded power that you can't even understand. You don't have an army at your beck and call. You don't have uh, people around you that are sycophants that are saying anything you want to hear. We understand entourages with, with celebrities, but we don't understand this, right? But when God looked at kings, he created this position because kings were from God. God said this was going to happen, right? He created this position for a reason. Now take a look here in, in Psalm 72, right? It says this, may he judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. May the mountains bring prosperity to the people. One of the common themes of the kings from God's perspective was that they were to use their power to benefit others. See, kings were not meant to be wealthy in their own right. They were meant to bring wealth with the people. If any of you have ever studied King Arthur, Arthurian legend, I love King Arthur, Knights of the Round Table. That was one of my things growing up. Um, I still, I could say, uh, read uh, an author by the name of Jack White. It's kind of re-envisioned. It's such a great series. Um, but what, what's it? whoever wrote the Arthurian legend there, there was this connection between the prosperity of the land and the king. And when the king was missing, the land would, would be deprived. Robin Hood kind of has that same theme as well, too. The true king is away, and the evil king has, has, has displaced him. Therefore, the people are under uh, oppression, right? Well, that's actually a biblical theme. 
Whenever a righteous king was in charge and living as God wanted for them, the people would prosper because that's what the kings were meant to do is they were meant to protect the people, but also their wealth was meant to help the people. Look what it says here. May he judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. One of the things that Christians are kind of rediscovering is God's sense of justice. And that means towards people who are impoverished, people who are, uh, people who are, are resource deprived, whatever it would be, Christians are now rediscovering this idea about social justice, we call it. But it's really deeper than that. It's a gospel justice that goes beyond just simply, here's a piece of food for you, or here's a piece of clothing. That's an aspect of it, but it goes deeper than that, right? And so what happens is, the kings were meant to be a person or an individual that would keep the nation secure, but everybody would prosper. Right? Wealth today is about I become wealthy and this is mine and I'm going to live lavish lifestyles and I'm going to go on vacations. My wealth is mine. But in the Old Testament times, wealth was meant to be for others. It was meant to help other people. And not only wealth, justice. Remember, the king was the ultimate legal authority. And when you came before the king, what you did not want was a corrupt king. Why? Because then you knew that the the, the outcome was already taken care of. Because somebody had paid off the king. The king was supposed to rule in righteousness, right? And righteousness, that word there, is actually a reflection of God's righteousness. All the king was supposed to do was supposed to reflect God's law. And God's law always looked at treating people better than they were. They always about treating, and, and not just Jewish people, but aliens. There's a whole chapter on, on how to treat aliens. And, and the Bible uh, uses the word aliens to talk about foreigners. And what the Bible says is that God wants those people who are foreigners, who are not native to the country, to be treated equally and fairly, which was unique in that culture, right? In in that culture, if you were a foreigner in a different country, your life was up for grabs. People could do whatever they wanted to. Why? Because you've got no family. You've got no ties in the community. So the king was meant to be the person that was going to protect the law. It was going to prosper the people. Right? Not to hoard wealth. And that's important when you understand uh, the role of the king. Now, when we start off the reign of King Solomon, what you have to look at is the visit. Right? You have to start off with this part here because this is really when, when he makes his, his mark. Right? In 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 5, you know the story. And, or at least if you don't know the story, let me explain to you. Right? King Solomon has just become king. And we know he's around 12 years old. We don't know if Jesus... No, we don't know if... I think it's Jesus, but we don't know if God appeared to him. We don't know how old he was. We suspect that it's fairly close to his coronation. So we think he's maybe 12 or 13 years old. God appears to him and says, ask me whatever you want. What 12 or 13 year old? If you could just say, hey, God appears to 12 and 13 year old. And he says, ask me for whatever you want. What would you say, right? I, you know, like, like I want this video game console. I want a bigger team. What would a 12 and 13 year old today ask God? Right? Now, what's interesting about this, and I did a little bit of a kind of a test. When I say to you, what did uh, Solomon ask for? The majority of you would say wisdom. And you would actually be incorrect. Solomon does not actually ask for wisdom. Instead, the Bible shows us what he asks for in verse 9. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? We think that Solomon says, please give me wisdom. But Solomon was too smart to ask for wisdom. 
Because wisdom is a burden, and we're going to look at this next week, this idea of what is meaning and wisdom and all that. Solomon actually doesn't ask for wisdom. What he asks for is discernment. Now, you say to yourself, okay, what is discernment, right? Now, when you look at the words that the, the Bible uses, there's five Hebrew words that are thus translated. Ben, Yadah, Nekah, Rahab if I get that right, and Shema. It may simply mean to observe or discriminating knowledge, but we see the different usages of it in the Old Testament, right? In Proverbs chapter 7, verse 7, and I saw among the simple, I perceived, this is discerning, among the youths, a young man devoid of understanding. In Ecclesiastes 8, 5, whoever obeys his command will come to no harm, and the wise will know, discern um, the proper time and procedure. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 18, and you will again see, again, the word discerning there, the distinction between righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. The other thing that we need to understand about the Bible is that it's written in Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New Testament. Now, the reason that's important is you need to understand that Greek and Hebrew are both very immersive languages. English is a very boring language. The only way English becomes an interesting language is in our usage of the vernacular. When people come to this country for the first time, they may have learned proper English, but you can't have a conversation with them because you're using slang words in a different way. They're like, why am I sick? I don't get why, what's going on. I'm not sick. I'm well. I'm quite well. Thank you. Right. We use the vernacular and common usage. And because of that people who understand proper English may not understand what we're talking about. Well, with Hebrew and Greek, when we read these words, wisdom and discerning, it's a little deeper. It's a little more immersive than that. And we have to kind of dig. Now, that's not to say you just can't read the Bible and understand it. But it is to say when you read the Bible, make sure you understand that there may be more going on under the surface. And it takes a little bit digging. So Solomon doesn't actually ask for wisdom. He asks for discernment. Let's take a look at Solomon's reign and just, you know, Spoiler alert here. There's going to be lots of words on the on this screen here. Second um, Chronicles 8 uh, uh, verses 1 to 6 says this. Oh, I know that's so much. At the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built the house of the Lord in his own house, Solomon rebuilt the cities that Haram and, and had, had given to him and settled the people of Israel in them. And Solomon went to Hamath Zebo and took it. He built Tadmor in the wilderness and all the store cities that he built up in Hamath. He also built Upper Beth Haram and Lower Beth Haram, fortified cities with the walls, gates, and bars, and Bala, and all the store cities Solomon had had, and all the cities for his chariots, and the cities for his horsemen, and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and all the land of his dominion. That's a lot of words, and that's a lot of strange words, but what you need to understand is Solomon is stinking rich, okay? That whatever he does, whatever he thinks to do, he accomplishes, okay? So what I thought to myself was, how do I tell you, how do I describe to you Solomon's wealth? So what I did is I went through history, and I try to find some comparisons, and a couple of websites do this, actually, is they take a look at historical figures, and they tell you in modern times how rich these people actually were. So I found some individuals, some of you will know, some of you won't know, a guy named of Alan Rufus. He actually um, um, hung around with the Caesars a lot. His net worth back in 1040 was about $178.65 billion. Henry Ford, you know Henry Ford, right? Bills a car nobody wants to buy. He was, that's not true. Up until 10 years ago. Um, he was worth about $199 billion. Sar, uh, Nicholas of uh, II of Russia, his worth was about $300 billion. Andrew Carnegie, again, a circle figure, he was worth about $310 billion. John D. Rockefeller was worth $663.4 billion, right? These individuals are wealthy. Now, let's take a comparison of King Solomon. Now, understanding a couple of things here, right? 
When people look at how rich Solomon was, what they really tend to look at is the price of cattle and gold, okay, which Solomon had a ton of. So in comparison to everyone else, this is how rich Solomon was. King Solomon was worth $2.1 trillion, okay? One commentator said $1.7 trillion, one person said $4 trillion. What they're doing is they're taking the amount of gold that he had and saying, okay, per ounce, per gold, this is what he got. What you need to understand is Solomon every year got tributes of gold from his vassal states. He had so much gold, the Bible tells that silver became worthless in Solomon's reign because it was so, gold was so plentiful. So a 12-year-old having the mass wealth of $2.1 trillion, okay? Wrap your brain around that. Um, there's a, a comedian, his name is Brett Butt. He uh, did Corner Gas, some of you may know him. He has this uh, comedy sketch where uh, early in his career he talks about, you know, uh, he doesn't know what it's like to be wealthy, right? And so this is early on, he's just a stand-up comic, right? And he says, if I get $500 in my, in my bank account, I go a little squirrely. I tell people, you know, n- that I don't need to take any guff from them, right? He, he gets, he's, that little bit of money makes me feel kind of, kind of um, you know, um, self-important and I feel more aggressive. What does $2.1 trillion do to you? Think about this for a moment. A 13-year-old with this much wealth. Because remember, David left him a, a kingdom that was huge. And all Solomon did was expand it. When you read Ecclesiastes, you must read it through the understanding that the person writing this book had no sense of understanding about money anymore. When you become that rich, money does not matter. And some of the words of Ecclesiastes, meaningless meaningless everything is meaningless you read that you go how can somebody write that somebody like this can write that because it is meaningless but even as i say that you can sit in your chairs and go well i don't have a trillion dollars so i guess i'm okay in this room is the richest 20 percent of the world's population 80 percent of the world 80 percent of the world is less wealthy than you are So one of the things we need to understand is what Ecclesiastes walks us through is riches. What does it mean to us and and, and how does it occupy our lives? So that kind of gives you a context for King Solomon. Now, take a look at 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 to 3, because this is where Solomon starts going down the hill. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, he married women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sidon, and among the Hittites. Now, stop there for a second. That list of foreign women are the enemies of Israel. These are tribes that have tried to destroy Israel time and time again. Okay? The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts to their gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. Sarah's... uh, testimony this morning was so fantastic and she may have a career as a comedian as well too um but what's really interesting is that she said that when she got in a relationship with a guy who had a different way of looking at a god right angry god mad god that infected her right but that's just one guy in a brief period of time what do 700 women do i I, if I, I'd want to disappear. That's all I got to say, right? I, 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 don't, I, don't, I can't even wrap my mind around that many wives. I can't wrap my mind that many, well, I can't wrap my mind a concubine, period. But you get the idea, right? You've got a thousand women whispering in your ear, serve my God. Do it this way. 
I, I grew up with a, I grew up with a household of five older sisters and my mom. That's enough women in my life. Okay, that's all I got, right? And so I've got three daughters and my wife. That's enough as well, too, right? We have a dog. He's a guy, but we neutered him, so now he's more of an it. So that's really all I have right now in my life. But when you read through Ecclesiastes and the writer is struggling with relationships, he's struggling with understanding the importance of relationships, you need to understand the reason he's struggling with them is because he has no context of normal relationships, Why is it are we surprised that when celebrities begin to kind of sleep around and get married and divorce? Like, I don't know. If I went to a celebrity wedding, I would keep the receipt. Because, like, really, it's a a bet on how long this couple's going to last, right? That's also kind of our culture as well, too, with marriages falling apart. My wife just texted me yesterday. We... Uh, a friend of ours that we knew who was a Christ follower, who loves Jesus, we just found out that that their marriage is split up. When your marriage splits up, when relationships break down like that, it's hard to understand how these things can have meaning to us. The writer of Ecclesiastes is exactly wrestling with that, okay? Um, Look at how, uh, this is from Deuteronomy, sorry, uh, did I... Oh, no, I did put the reference here. Look at how God wants a king to act and behave, okay? In Deuteronomy chapter 17, this is a chapter about how kings are meant to behave, right? And when you look at this chapter, you see exactly God's perspective of a king. Because you say to yourself, 700 wives, 300 concubines. Is God okay with that? And God's like, heck no. That's not what I wanted for these individuals. That's not even close to what I wanted. Look at Deuteronomy 17. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it. Remember, this is God speaking to Moses. Deuteronomy is the book of the law to be repeated to the Israelites before they enter into the promised land. And you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. God knew this was coming. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not, he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Now, clarification here. You see the phrase, many wives. You're like, two, three, is that okay, right? Actually, what the the writers are saying there is, what what God is trying to say there is that you shouldn't have more than one. Because two is too many. Right? That's what's supposed to happen here. So the king's supposed to have one wife, not to have too many horses, and not accumulate much wealth. How's Solomon doing on all those? Right? But then look what else God says to, to the king, Okay? When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law, taken from that of the Levitical priest. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law. And these decrees are not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites, and turn away from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over the kingdom in Israel. How's Solomon doing so far? Yes, he's got tons of wealth. He's got tons of uh, influence. He's got tons of this. But according to God, he's a failure. His wealth does not erase his sins. He was not meant to accumulate wealth for himself in that way. He was not meant to accumulate women, uh, relationships in that way. He was not meant to do that. The wealth and all of that was meant to be for the people. When the king prospers, the people prosper. 
that was how the king was supposed to reign and how he was supposed to happen. So when you read through the Bible and you go, why do these kings have multiple wives? Why did this king do that? Understand something. God's not okay with that. God is not okay with a king treating people as, as simply uh, pieces of a machine. Wealth was meant to be shared. It was meant, meant to prosper everyone. And not just Israelites alike, but also the foreigner, the alien as well too. That's what God intended for this. Now, in uh, 1 Kings 11, we see Solomon's downfall. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of his David father had been. He followed Asherah, the goddess of Sidonians, Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David his father had done. One time, sometime one person said to me, why does God kill these foreign priests a lot? Let me give you a little bit of a case study on the two gods it mentions here, okay? First of all, you need to understand the god Ashirith. Ashirith was a, to put it gently, a fertility cult. But what really happened is children were sex slaves. And what would happen in this context is you could go to the temple to worship God. And by worshiping God, you get to pick a prostitute to have sex with. And these children were chosen at a very young age. That's Asherah. Okay? Why do you think God was so angry at this people for doing that? Because children had value to God. Children had a place in God's plan. And he did not want anybody to hurt or harm them. As a matter of fact, Jesus even says, It is better for a person to have a weight tied around their neck and thrown into the sea than you hurt or harm God's creation, his children. Moloch. Moloch had a way of worshiping, okay? Moloch would be this, this statue, and in its belly would be a flame. Its arms would be on hinges. And what you would do is you would bring a baby. And Moloch's mouth was huge. And what would happen is the priest would start this fire in the belly of this, of this, of this statue, and you would put the baby on Moloch's arms. And as priests over here would chant... The arms would raise. The baby would be, it would be consumed. It was human sacrifice. This is what Solomon got into. Why do you think God was so angry with him? Why do you think God is so angry in the Old Testament? You, ought, you say to yourself, God, you're so angry. If that doesn't make you angry, I don't know what's wrong with you. If you look at the Old Testament and you see what God is trying to do, he's trying to create a place where man and woman, where children are treated equally. Where they get to grow up and then choose and live in God's prosperity and his love. Not to be abused, not to be hurt, not to be slaves, not any of this. So this is what Solomon got into. As a matter of fact, we talked about uh, Gethsemane. We talked about the Mount of Olives. Remember, it became called the Mount of Corruption. Why? Because Solomon built on this, on this mountain temples to these gods. Please hear me very clearly. You look at the Old Testament and you go, it's so bloody, it's so angry. Yeah, because God's not okay with children and women and old people. Widows and orphans, these are the two images that God constantly uses for his justice. God's level of justice is that nobody goes hungry and people are taking care of one another. That's the Old Testament. And the Israelites would encounter people who did not have value of life that they did. See, the Israelites were taught by God that humanity was created in God's image. And because they were created in God's image, take care of one another. Don't abuse. Did you know that the Israelite army was the only army that didn't rape and pillage after they conquered another army? When the Israelites would conquer the army, that's where the violence would stop. 
the other armies, once the army was conquered, would go into the villages and would rape and kill. That was part of how the kings would pay these mercenaries to fight for them. Israelites did not do that. So please, take your North American way of looking at, this, at the Old Testament and set it aside and understand what God's justice looks like. It is deeper and more profound than we can understand. And God is not okay with the wealthy um, squishing the poor. God is not okay with children being given up to a life of slavery. God is not okay with any of that. That's the God that you serve. And when you look at the Old Testament and you feel this kind of repugnance or repulsion because you're seeing this, dig deeper and understand God's heart because that's the God you serve. That was free, by the way. I didn't even know where that came from. Okay, here we go. First Kings uh, chapter 1, verse 9, right? Uh, uh, this is, this is uh, actually God reappearing and speaking to Solomon. The Lord became angry with Solomon because of his heart had turned away from God, the God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. God appeared to this guy twice. And he does this to God. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude, come on. God is kind of, God is like, he's like, listen, what is wrong with you? I've given you everything. I've appeared to you twice. You know that I'm real. But this is how you repay me? Since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. This is how God is responding here. He's saying, what more do you want from me? I kind of feel God says this to my, to my life as well too. God says to me, what more do you want from me? I've given you the gift of salvation. I've shown you my power. And yet this is how you treat me. This is how it happens. When we, when we want to understand um, Ecclesiastes, this is what you need to understand. Ecclesiastes is the tensions that pull at our lives. See, your life is pulled in different directions. You feel it. You've pulled this way for school, for work, for family, for relationships and dating and your, and your money and your wealth and your spare time and your pleasure. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, the writer, King Solomon, is wrestling with these tensions as well. The book, the reason why Ecclesiastes is so important and why I have fallen in love with it, because when I read the book of Ecclesiastes, I'm reading my life right now. Because in my life, I'm, asked, I'm trying to answer these questions. Um, I'm trying to figure out how to have this. When, when reading Ecclesiastes, we must read it through the lens of someone who is weary with the world and have lost their way. After having a brief uh, biography of, of Solomon, don't you realize this guy is tired? Maybe he feels shame and guilt for his life. Maybe in his, in his, in his, in his throne room and maybe in his back office, I don't know if he had that, where away from... The thousand women who are trying to, you know, get his attention. Away from everyone else, he's sitting on a piece of paper and a pen. And he's saying, what have I done? And he's writing the words, meaningless, meaningless. All is meaningless. He has lost God. And everything that he has, everything that he has owned, everything that he has accomplished, means nothing without his Savior. Let me give you a couple of reasons why we need Ecclesiastes. We are drowning in plenty and in pain. We have so much stuff, but we are so unhappy. We have more than we know what to do with. And instead of making us happier, it makes us miserable. We are lost in our priorities. We don't know how to place God at the forefront. 
We don't know what that looks like anymore. Why? Because there's so many things tugging at us. There's so many things that tug against community, against coming together and rejoicing our times of gathering. We don't know what to do with that. We are baffled by our desires. We have these desires in our lives. We, We question, is this what God wants for me? Am I supposed to have this bigger house, this nicer car, this relationship? Is this what God wants? How do we, what, what priority in that? And the last thing I think we need to please ask is relationships have lost their meaning in place. One of the things, if you are new to UCC, you need to understand, we love community. And we love coming together as a church. We love coming together as small groups. That's what's really important for us. And so when we look at Ecclesiastes, I'm reading through this, I'm saying to myself, wow, this guy understands. You know, it's, it's, it's like he's speaking in the negative. Whatever he's saying, I'm going to take the opposite from him. Here's the three questions that Ecclesiastes answers. What did you expect out of life? Right now, where you are in your life, are you where you thought you'd be? Are you happy? Are you sad? Our lives kind of go on a roller coaster. At some points we're happy, sometimes we're not. But what Ecclesiastes really asks us, looks us straight in the eyes and says, what did you expect out of life? And the second thing it asks us is, what if your expectations were wrong? I expected to be married at this point in time. I expected to have this amount of kids. I expected this, expected this, expected this. And we look at our life and we say, why did you expect that? And did you think that this was God's plan for your life? And the third thing that I think Ecclesiastes answers is, where do those expectations come from? Where do they come from? Why do you think that you deserve these things when billions of people around the world can't even have a meal? When millions upon millions of people can't even afford or have any access to clean water, where do your expectations come from? I think where expectations come from is kind of a spoiled North American mentality. From the perspective of pleasure, from the, the uh, comfort, that's where these come from. Let me close here because I think Jesus has something to say about this. Please let Jesus have something to say about this. Mark chapter 8, verse 34 to 37. You know this, right? Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples saying, whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? What is worth God in your life? And you'll find that answer pretty quickly. Why? Because something will supplant him in your life. A relationship. Uh, pursuit of wealth. Pursuit of, of status. Pursuit of something. Something will displace God in your life. And just like Sarah said in her testimony, we don't realize it, but we realize the loss. And it aches within us. Paul says something to us in the Philippians as well. And this, these two verses are going to kind of echo through this entire series. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. This is Paul's battle cry, and we know Paul lived this. How do we... As Christ followers today in the context we were that won the biological lottery of being born where we were born. How do we find a way to love God in the plenty, in the excess? How do we model our lives differently than everybody else? Well, the answers, believe it or not, lie in Ecclesiastes. And for the next few weeks, we're going to be walking through this book. It's going to be painful. I'm going to be honest with you. Ecclesiastes is like a scalpel that carves away things from our lives that don't mean anything. At the end of it, 
at the end of the series, what is going to happen is we are hopefully going to be open-handed Christ followers. When open-handed Christ followers simply means, Lord, this is my life. And the world lives like this, mine, right? But God says, open your hands because I will take what I want from it and I'll give what I think you need from it as well. And if we can find that place that Paul's talking about, the contentment in whether we have what we thought we should have or what we don't believe we deserve, that is the way to true Christ-likeness. Let's pray. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I do this every week. I just want you to take a moment to meditate and to think. Why? Because as soon as we are dismissed, you're running out the door, and I know you have a days ahead of you and planned, and that's all well and good. But what we need to say to ourselves is, where is God in the priority of your lives? Is your life where you thought it would be? Are expectations thought where, where you thought they should be? And has some of those disappointments, has it affected your relationship with God? Do we shake our fists at God saying, why? Why am I not where I thought it should be? Why am I still living this way? Why do I not have the job I thought I should have or the relationship? Or, or why is my relationship in my life? Why is, it, why is it in shambles? It wasn't my fault that, my, that this person walked out on me. It's not my fault this took place, but I'm living with the consequences. And all these things we say to ourselves, God, where are you in the mess that is my life? The reply from your Savior, from your God, from your Redeemer is, I'm right here. Never left you. And some of you through the series, you're going to see yourself in King Solomon's writings. And you're going to say, that's me. My prayer for each of you and myself is I have been bombarded with, this, with, the, with the, the message of Ecclesiastes. is realize God be the number one priority. Be the number one priority. Heavenly Father, we pray right now by your Holy Spirit, you'd speak to the hearts and minds of each person here. Lord, I don't know their stories. I don't know their past. I don't know their future, but you do. I do know, Lord, that we struggle, we wrestle. and Sometimes we blame you. Sometimes we curse you. Lord, I'm glad to know that you are a God of justice. I'm glad to know that you are a God that's not okay with the suffering that happens in this world. You, God, that you care about the that you care about the wealth, that you care about every person. And all you ask of us is to trust you and to place what we have in your hands. God, I pray that we as a church, as a community would know that we need to wrestle. We need to ask these tough questions, but we also need to know that we have trust in our Savior, Lord. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for each person here. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining. Please have a uh, blessed Mother's Day. If you have any questions about anything I said or want to talk, I will stay at the front here. The rest of you, have a great day.